Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Al, a VC, founder, and father. Mondays for no BS commentary on the latest startup news with Shi and Co, managing partner of Hustle Fund. Thursdays for in-depth interviews of changemakers across the region, sharing about the highs and lows of their lives. Join us and over 10,000 subscribers at www.bravesea.com for transcripts, analysis, and community. Hey Nicole, really excited to have you on the show. Another fellow Harvard MBA turned founder slash bad student. You're building something incredible in the world today for the future of the world. So, could you share a little bit about yourself? Yes. Hello, Jeremy. Thank you so much to having me here, and it just really make me nervous. I think that's one brave thing that I have ever taken this year. My name is Nicole. I'm the CEO and founder of Tiger New Energy, which is a battery company based in Bangladesh. And those already have two few words maybe trigger your curiosity. And originally, I'm from China. I went to Harvard after having worked for BCG for three or four years. Then become a Harvard MBA. All the past is make my parents happy. Being a good student, going to fancy camp company like BCG, being a consultant, going to Harvard, everything they like. Then after Harvard, I really want to get away from this good student path and、I、want to do something that I truly passionate about, which is being a founder and really have my business in emerging markets. And I visit Bangladesh. And last year of my university, when all the courses went online in 2021, then I get chance to travel around to see the world, and landed in Bangladesh and really see the passion of this economy and see the opportunity in renewable energy. So that's how I started the whole journey. Amazing. So building out this renewable energy solution in Bangladesh. Is a tremendous path. When did you ever say to yourself, like, I want to be a founder one day? I would like to be entrepreneurial. Were you entrepreneurial as a kid? Did you, I don't know, sell candy, or were you a good student? How does that happen? I think I never saw that I would be a founder. Even though I come from a business family, my parents they have been doing business in China for thirty years, but. When you come from a business family and you think like, okay, I don't want to do the same thing as my father was doing, so I don't want to be a founder. I don't want to start my own company. It's too much pressure. So I never thought this would, would be a choice for me. But what really triggers my interest to be a founder is I really being a founder, because I see this opportunity. The first thought is not like I want to be a founder. Then I build this business. It's because. I see it's really a great business opportunity, and really a lot that we can contribute our knowledge to help the people, help the community, and help the economy. So I start this company. I seeing first the opportunity, then think about if I want to be a founder. So after one year, I start seriously think, how does it mean to be a founder? Do I really want to be a founder? 
And the answer is yes. One is it's really exciting because as a founder, you really put yourself in a situation. So every day to you is like a trouble box. So especially a founder or CEO, I remember a very interesting quote from Elon Musk. He said, so in the founder, you are dealing with different troubles every day because it's like a filter, right? Your company is like a filter. Every standardized question being solved by different part of your people or organization and everything left out to you it's the most difficult things other people cannot solve. So, so it's in your hand as a CEO. And this part is actually very interesting to me because I really want to do different things and facing different challenges. I don't like a regular routine every day. And so to me, I like to be this like fire saver every day. It's very exciting. And secondly, I think being a founder is a very interesting journey for me personally to know more about myself because in this kind of situation especially what i'm doing as being a founder in a foreign country you're facing different challenges culturally also from the business side and for also from the society from the culture then i know more about myself of like how i react to those pressures how i react to different people to different culture shocks and to different business challenges. And this part is very interesting because to me, I think life is very long and it's the journey about experience. And also it's the journey about knowing more of yourself. And I think being a founder is, is the best way to learn more about yourself and to do self-development. And I think certainly we're always thinking about making an impact and to have the freedom to do the things you want. Now, I think being a founder is it's the best way to give you that freedom to build whatever impact that you want and to hold those responsibilities. If the business fails, you are the founder. You cannot blame on anyone else because you have all the control. You pay the full responsibility. But at the same, same time, you have all the freedom to do anything that you think is right and to attract all the resources to build all what you believe. So I think I really fall in love with that level of freedom, also fall in love of being responsible for all the decisions that I have made. Wow, sounds like instead of going for meditation or <laughs> a retreat, you should become a founder to discover. Yeah, I, Exactly. I really think it's also a kind of meditation. So what's interesting is that, like you said, there's a lot of pressure. You didn't want to do it and then you chose to do it. What made you go over that hump, right? Because a lot of people feel that way often, right? Which is they feel the pressure, they don't want to do it. And then that's it. That's the end of the story, right? So how did you go about getting comfortable with that next stage and taking that step to become a founder? So to me, it's a very interesting thing. It's reverse. So I choose to do that because I see it's really a great opportunity to achieve my passion. I just have a voice inside me heard like, you should do it. Then I started without thinking how difficult it can be, without thinking how much challenge or pressure I'm going to take. So I think if I overthink about those things, I would never start it. So I started first, then every pressure and everything comes to me. I think my reaction is two things I always tell myself, like, Nicole, firstly, 
you need to do what's right instead of what's easy. It will make all the differences. When something's difficult, I always ask me, like, is there a right thing? So if it's the right thing, I will go for it. And secondly, for all the pressure, I tell myself that I think how big the achievement that you can make is always about how much pressure you can tolerate. So when it's large pressure, I always tell myself that, okay, it's the chance for you to go up your tolerance. Then you have better chance of being a better version of yourself. So I think that's how I overcome the pressure and the things that I, I'm like suffering or like tolerance right now. So I think if I would make advice or share my experience to everyone who wants to be a founder, so firstly is don't think about those pressure. If you're thinking about this too much, it's going to scare you at the beginning. And also don't um, underestimate how much your tolerance can be because it's growing. You you always think that, okay, I'm going to die. It's really too much. Or if you think about that, oh, I'm going to face this challenge, I might not be able to handle it. Then you back off. I think it's back off too early. You put yourself in the situation to see how you can overcome this. Then you will find yourself like always surprise yourself. I love the point about surprising yourself. What's interesting is that you chose to do a Harvard MBA, right? And then you chose to be a founder after that. So during this journey, I guess, were there any things that surprised yourself about this journey, about at a Harvard MBA or being a founder? What things surprised you about yourself? Yeah, I think it's a very interesting question. And being a, one thing I really find that surprised myself is one, how useful the Harvard experience can be. Secondly, is how unuseful the experience can be. So for the unuseful experience is when you become a founder, you realize all those fancy titles doesn't matter anymore. No matter you are Harvard MBA or you even you didn't graduate from high school, it doesn't matter. It's about how can you overcome those challenges? How's your number? How's your monthly growth? How's your revenue? How you can convince your customers to go with you? How can you motivate your employees to go with you? And those things you cannot learn from Harvard. So that's why I feel, okay, it's the time to, to get rid of your past achievements and to put yourself in a new learning situation, how to be a good business person, how to be a good leader to firstly convince yourself, then convince others to go with you and these others, including your investors and your employees and your customers. Those are very important. And Harvard title cannot help you to, to do that. And you need to learn that all yourself. And also how to overcome those challenges, how to tolerance those pressures and how to make right decision in the difficult business environment. All those things we need to learn and to see yourself as a new baby in this world. And I also find how useful the Harvard experience can be is lots of things that we learn at school. I think useless actually is very useful because at Harvard, I think everything when they trying to teach you at the moment you don't understand. It's like, why you teach me those things? But when you are really in the situation, you realize they are teaching you the fundamentals and everything you need. For example, 
we have one very interesting experience at the beginning. So it's an exercise to ask everyone to show vulnerability and to share with other people about the difficulties you are facing and to show, to ask people for help. For me, it was very difficult for me to do at school. And I don't understand like why I want to show my vulnerability to others. Like other people, how can you find people really care about you? I don't think it makes sense to me at the moment, especially I'm coming from like a very reserved Asian culture. I don't think like over disposing yourself, especially your vulnerability, it's a good thing. Also, I think to me, I have this stereotype. If you want to be a leader, you need to be strong. Especially as a female founder, we kind of overdone it. We want to show those men that we are strong. We can tolerate all the challenges. I really feel uncomfortable of doing exercise. So at school, I think it's really not necessary. But when I'm in this business activity, I really think Harvard were teaching us a very useful technique of being authentic to show vulnerability and to ask for help. For example, when I have this new sales director in my company at the beginning, we're kind of in a very tense situation because he's much older than me. He's almost like 40 or 50. So and I trying to lead him and he was trying to teach me things, trying to understand like nothing. I'm in this industry for a long time and I'm trying to convince him that I'm your boss and I graduated from Harvard and know things. So it's not very helpful. And I was trying to to be like, okay, I don't don't look at everything that I'm because I'm a female and I'm a foreigner. I don't understand. So it's just like a big tension between us. Then I think there's one time we have this like authentic conversation about my struggle and anxiety for the sales number. And the thing is, I really want to understand this market and I really want the sales to be good. And I'm also very anxious about being a female founder and building a foreigner in this market, in especially in Bangladesh market and the battery as man dominant world. I do feel this insecurity, but my best intention is want to grow this company. And we believe that we have the best product in the market and I really want to push the sales up. And I really want everyone to, to have good experience with our product. Then after I opening up and show this part of vulnerability, and he also start opening up like, to show me his honest experience or like feedback or plans, how he sees the market and how he think about the best plan for us to win and also the best way for us to work together. Then afterwards, everything works out much better. And I always learn a lot from them. And I feel like those learning can, or like very strong support cannot come by me pretending to be a strong lion, but it will come by me being an authentic person, also showing my vulnerability and ask for help when I need. And I think that's interesting, right? Because you're building in two parts that are really hard, right? Not just being a founder, but you're building in batteries, which is a lot of deep tech slash knowledge slash manufacturing. And you're also building this in Bangladesh, right? 
So that's a geography that is honestly a tough market for anybody in the world. So how many Americans, how many Singaporeans or Southeast Asians could say like they're able to tackle the market. So as you did all that, what things have you learned about building this business about the business? I think that's mixed together. Like I think the learning takes up like different parts and different stages. I think first is how I feel to build this business in a foreign country. And also the second part is how I think about to make this competition and to make the company valuable. And I think the first part, I, I actually found it very interesting that it's challenging building a new company in a foreign country. And it might be also inspiring for people who are thinking about coming to Southeast Asia. It is challenging because everything you take for granted, you might not be able to find it in emerging markets. So in business, if in America, it's very easy to find a very professional accounting firm or to get every service that you need to, to get your business writing. And you don't need to think about like hiring and all those are the main issue. I never thought this could be an issue for me, but in emerging markets, those services are not as valuable as or as accessible as that you can see in, in China or in the US. You need to figure out this yourself. And hiring and finding a good HR could be a challenging for you. Especially for us, it's battery manufacturing that involves lots of different different parts of supply chain and many things can be missing in emerging markets. For example, at the beginning, I think it's very easy to find a good glue even for my, but it's a special glue for my battery. Then I realized, no, I cannot find it in local market. I need to import from China. And when I import, and it's difficult because glue is it's like a special approval from the government to import glue, and it, it takes a lot of time. This thing, this very small thing, becomes a bottleneck for the whole supply chain. And everything is waiting for this batch of glue to come in to run a smooth uh, operation. And I think this is surprising for me. Even small things can be a big challenging, and everything you take granted in mature markets is it's not applicable in emerging markets. Now, for, me, for my experience, it's Bangladesh, but you can find this as an issue for more countries in emerging markets. Secondly, for personal life, and there are lots of things I, I took for granted and I find it can be challenging in Bangladesh. For example, it's easy for me to grab a coffee in Starbucks. But in Bangladesh, I was surprised that it's very hard to, to find a good cup of coffee. So these are the things that personally I find it challenging. But it turns out it can be a good thing because now I have more appreciation towards anything that before I take it for granted. So I think those are the country situation that I find it interesting and I find it can be inspiring to other people. And secondly, is be in an industry that is male dominant and also hard tech driven. So the technology is involving and there are already very strong competitors in the market. Then how can we survive? Those are the other questions that keep me up at night all the time. And what I learned is one is when we get into this business, we always find before we think a lot about competitions. We think about how can we win? How can we win over those big guys? 
Now we're thinking more about collaborations, even though those big companies, at the beginning you think, okay, they are good at anything. Then you realize actually there's always market niche and for startups in different stages, we have different advantages. For example, we are much more flexible than the big companies in terms of the solutions and offerings that we can provide. This is our value to our customers and this is value to, to our, we say, competitors or partners. So then we leverage, then firstly, we fully recognize with our advantage. Then we start building our partnerships with before our competitors, now our partners, and how we come up with a good, good solution and deliver this to customers. I think those are the things that I learned very, very valuable, and those are the things that I could never know before. And uh, I think the last part is I, I think it's super valuable. Is before I always think it's about the technology, it's about the solutions, about the business model. I think it's still that. Besides, it's all about people. It's how because. Even now, you have the best technology, but the world is changing. Your best technology can be outdated technology for two or three years. So the how can you make your company and how can you make your business sustainable is how can you have a very active organization, innovative organization mechanism. They can always bring up the best solution to the market and they can always drive the innovation and drive the value forward. And this, you need a a good group of people who are always pushing things forward. Like we already, even if we're already the best in the market, how can we do better tomorrow? How can we win the market in, in three or five years? I think those are very important. Like if you have a good technology, you have good offering can make you safe forever. I think the world is past. So we, we need this adaptive mindset and innovative mindset to keep changing and keep evolving. You talked about technology and business model, and folks are very excited about batteries, right? About how they play a role in renewable energy and transition towards a greener world. What are some myths or misconceptions that people have about batteries and the business model around batteries that people may have? Because I think people are just like, oh, batteries are really important. It's in my phone. It's an electric car. And then it's kind of very high level, right? The the most interesting thing, that I find and I think it's missing and I think that will be the trend in three to five years is people in emerging markets, when they talk about batteries, they are thinking about too much of the price, but not the value. So for example, the different type of technology in batteries, some are more expensive, some are, some are cheaper. So I take an easy example because the technology or things for car batteries, well, way too complicated for example when you buy a power bank you might be confused that i can spend like five dollars to buy a power bank and i can also spend twenty dollars or like thirty dollars to buy to buy a power bank then what's the difference so if you spend five dollars to buy buy a power bank it can last you and the time you need to charge is totally different with the with the money that you spend thirty dollars to buy a power bank for your phone and when you think about, so lots of people, they're thinking about how much I cost at the beginning. They're not thinking about how much I cost per day or how much does it cost me per charge. 
And it actually makes a huge difference for the customer experience. So what we really try to do is we try to educate customers about, it's not about how much you cost, it's like in total, it's about how much you cost per charge. And if you think about cost per charge, if everyone's thinking about that, it will drive the market in a better direction. That's every supplier is thinking about a good technology and long lasting products, which is more sustainable and better for the environment and better for the users too. If everyone's thinking about how much does it cost at the beginning, then every supplier will go in towards in a direction that's how can I cut my cost? How can I make cheap, but very bad quality products? So I think as a customer, when we, when we consume batteries, no matter what that battery is, is it for your car or, or for your phone that we need to think about. And also that's as a supplier, we need to educate the customers and drive the industry towards a more sustainable direction. And the second part I think now is missing in the whole ex ecosystem is everyone's thinking about producing batteries and there are lots of batteries like car batteries and the phone batteries. And what really concerns me then, how about the recycling facilities in, in the society, right? Especially in emerging markets, it's one large missing part. So if even for lithium battery, for those car battery, you think it's sustainable, it's environmental friendly, but when you think about those batteries, they can be very bad to the environment too. If they are not handled properly, we are causing another part of the damage to the environment, then it's not net zero and it's not sustainable anymore. As a company and also as a citizen for this globe, we should think more about how those whole ecosystem can run more properly to really have a sustainable future. As a battery company, now we are producing while supplying the market with high quality products, but we are also constantly thinking about what about the recycling? Then what can we do on that part to make the whole system running towards a more sustainable way? I think definitely the battery recycling is a big problem. And I think if you look at recycling in terms of volume, obviously the most is like paper and plastic, right? But actually, if you look at it in terms of what recyclers are trying to do, the highest value item that's coming out of the recycling stream is actually batteries, electrical waste. Yeah. So there's an interesting dynamic where I think startups are they're looking to do a lot of recycling in emerging markets, but the revenue stream is all on recycling e-waste. I think one thing you mentioned, of course, is talking about cost per charge, right? And I think at the end of the day, there's this interesting dynamic, right, where everyone's trying to figure out where does the value go in the value chain if everybody switches to electricity, right? So what I mean by that is in the gas world, petrol, it used to be like, okay, the oil and gas people who obviously pump and then refine and then ship. And then after that, there's gas stations in terms of the networks like Shell or BP, et cetera. And then now, obviously, there's people are charging at home, people are charging in the office, and I, there's actually a whole bunch of startups that are trying to build like charging gas stations. So instead of a gas station, we have multiple charging stations and we're trying to create these hubs. And then some other people are like, no, it doesn't make sense because if you can charge at home, there's like 80% of your battery charge value is already at home. Um, 
really the value goes to the utility, right? Electricity, the utility that's actually making that power. And also there's all kinds of dynamics where when you charge an electric vehicle, it actually draws a lot of current straight away. So there's a big surge mm. in the electricity. So actually there's a surge pricing that kicks in unless you do it very slowly. Da, da, da. Anyway, the, what I'm trying to ask is a little bit is when I think about this new world where we move, let's say, 100% away from gas, because I think gas is gone, I think, in in 30 years to 50 years, right? So it's all going to be electricity. Like, Where does the value go, you think, in, in the industry? I guess part of it definitely goes to the batteries because nobody else makes batteries, so that's you. But how else do you think it flows into the ecosystem of society? It's actually a very large topic, and there are lots of people that play in the value chain. I definitely agree with you that when all you is gone, then when we pay more attention to the electricity world, then you realize actually there are also many like remaining issues. One um, is battery, another is the grid, for sure. And how can we? And also, that's also people challenging me. Like you said, EV it's good because it's charged by electricity. But don't forget how we produce electricity. We use oil to produce electricity in many, many countries. Then how can you solve this issue? So it goes back to the issue, like fundamentally, how we make this sustainability energy is how we produce electricity. If we don't produce electricity in a renewable way, then it's not renewable. And I see there are many good solutions. One is we call the one is the, the, definitely solar. And secondly, wind is catching up. And another is a very debatable solutions and often nuclear power plant. And those technology are keep evolving. And especially for solar, we can see the price is already can be comparable to the regular generators already. And so the interesting incentive we are doing is we Besides produce batteries, we're also doing battery swapping stations. And uh, now those stations is charging by the grid. And we're doing this implementation about can we charge those stations with solar panels? So those stations, one, it's easier for them to sustain themselves without putting any pressure to the grid. And secondly, is then it gives us lots of flexible solutions like how you now how you put your stations you need to talk to the state departments to see if the grid can be at a good tolerance to your station but if we can make it to the to be charged with solar panels give us a lot more flexibility on that so i think fundamentally for the whole ecosystem it's definitely very important that how we leverage those renewable solutions to generate electricity. And the second part is efficiency. So even though you are using, I always tell people that even though you are using oil to generate electricity, then you charge your EV car with those electricity actually generated by oil. But efficiency is different. So the efficiency at large power plants is 30% or 50% higher than the car engines. And also the carbon emission is a lot lesser. So if we have better technology in those large power plants to increase the efficiency from 30% to 50% and even higher, then it creates even more value to the whole electricity process system. 
And also last part is even though we use electricity to charge those cars, it looks like that creates lots of pressure to the grid. But actually it's not because there's like peak season and low season to the grid. And the the key point is you don't want everybody consume at a peak time and you want a very evened out consumption of electricity to, to the grid. And usually during nighttime, there's low demand to the grid. At the nighttime, it's usually the time people charge their EV cars and e-bikes. So it bring, brings up the even out the consumption to the grid. And you treat every batteries and you treat the EV cars as the storage systems to the electricity that's generated by the whole system. So this can also make the whole ecosystem running more smoothly. As you think about that, do you think the world is going to move towards more like agglomeration or scale economics? Are there natural economies of scale at different parts? I think utilities obviously have the most economies of scale, right? Because they have the, the wires, they have the generation, etc. So they already handle that. And you can't do power redistribution without servicing a large area. But I think what other areas of the industry do you think benefit from economies of scale or likely to consolidate over time? Yeah, I think this also is very a micro question. So I think for the largest scale of economy, we can see one is how the EV supply chain that we already can see in China. So for example, how much money that costs you to buy EV batteries, especially lithium batteries, five years ago towards now, it's only 20 to 30% or even lower. This is part of the skill that's how the large consumption and uh, production capacity can drag down the price and the benefits to the economy eventually. That's part of very large eco- economic skills that we have seen. And there's more part of this evidence in the whole economy. And what we really want to see more besides just the EV batteries or like lithium batteries price dropping is we want to see the price of renewable energy dropping, and this can also benefit by economic of skills. Like we see how much costs you to generate electricity by solar, how much costs you to generate by wind generations. Also, we see the trend of decreasing cost and because of economic of skills. And I think those part is the society should spend more efforts to work on because as I said, those are the fundamentals because that's how you generate electricity and how you use electricity to, to power up your cars and also more more consumptions. And on that note, could you share with us a time that you personally have been brave? Okay, I think that, as I said at the beginning, for me, joining this podcast is very brave because for me, it's the first time I joining any podcast. Secondly, after the 45 minutes, I ensure that it's really a brave journey because I didn't expect this to be very technical and, <laughs> and also share so many micro perspectives. And secondly, I think a brave choice is definitely for me to jump out of my comfort zone and to piss my parents off by not being a good student, by having started this journey in Bangladesh and being a founder. But I, I truly think it's a very enjoyable and beneficial journey because Sudali helped me to understand 
more of myself and also help me to see the world differently from a more macro perspective and to think more about what kind of value or what kind of impact that we can bring to the society. I think it, it might sound surprising to some of the people, but I really, really appreciate the time in Bangladesh in emerging markets because before, what I think really matters to me, good restaurant, good coffee, good shopping place, fancy clothes, high heels. And after being a founder, after living in emerging markets, I don't think those things are available to me anymore. I think really make a difference is day to day. When I look at those people, for example, I, I want to share a very interesting story. Now we move around by rickshaws in Bangladesh. And the rickshaw is this two-wheeler car and powered by people. And every time when I ride rickshaw, we think about those people, what are the difficulties they have, how much they need to spend to buy batteries, and how would the good quality of batteries change their life. And when they smell at me, like those customers, thank you for providing those solutions to me by make my life easier. Um, are the happiest moment that's in my life. And it's better than fancy clothes. And it's better than like good restaurants. So I, I think the brief experience, it might sound like a ridiculous experience at the beginning, but it will make all the difference at the end. You shared that your parents were pissed off that you were not a good student. So what happened there and why? Yeah, I think one is at Harvard, I'm definitely not a people with highest score and I almost failed my degree. My last semester, I already in Bangladesh and really exploring those opportunities. Definitely spend and pay less attention at class and pay more attention in solving those real-life difficulties and uh, try to run this business. And this thing makes me a bad student and make my parents very worried at that moment. And afterwards, I chose to become a founder, not following the regular path to get a decent job in big companies also pissed them off. <laughs> and I think those are very difficult decision moments for me, how I prioritize things, right? And it's especially the voice that helped me to make this choice is regardless of those people's opinion, regardless of those noise that you have heard, what's the right thing to do for you? So for me, what the things make me feel really happy is I'm handling those daily difficulties and I see I really change things for my employees, for my customers. And uh, when they smile at me, when they say positive things they have experienced because of me, because of my company, they feel like, okay, it's the right thing to do. Then I can not make everyone happy. I, I have to do the things that I think which is right. Thank you so much for sharing. That was a very wholesome way to wrap this up. So I'd like to share the three big themes that I got from this conversation. I think the first, of course, is I think sharing your journey from someone who was thinking about the founder journey being way too much pressure to becoming obviously a management consultant, to being a Harvard MBA, to eventually choosing to be a founder in battery tech and in Bangladesh emerging markets. And I think there were some interesting reflections that you said about the 
professional learnings you had about what you learned at Harvard that was useful versus not useful at all, as well as the personal learnings about your own lifestyle and the things that you find nice to have versus must have. I think the second that I really appreciate was actually the dive, like you said, into the micro aspects of batteries and the implications and the misconceptions that people have. It's just really interesting to hear your point of view on how the industry is changing, but also where the value is going to go. And I think some of the common rebuttals against batteries, I appreciate you sharing about how it's not just about uh, the electrification of technology and devices and vehicles, but also about the efficiency of it. And I think those really interesting points. Lastly, thanks so much for sharing about talking about doing what's right over what's easy. You shared about how it meant in terms of picking the country to build but also in a context of the business decisions you have to make. And also, I think sharing about having that authentic, vulnerable conversation, right? You're a teammate so that you're able to actually finally get on the same page about what the actual medium to long-term goals are, right? It's a bunch of humans, like you said, walking around and working together at the end of the day. So thank you so much, Nicole, for sharing all of that and keep changing the world and keep making us use electricity. Yes, thank you so much. Inspiring podcast also triggered me to think about lots of things. And at the end, maybe I want to share one one thing more are the inspirations I get from the conversation with you. I think for the people who are trying to be a founder, trying to piece off their parents, I think one thing that you need to be brave is don't think too much. Don't scare yourself before you're really facing the challenges. Don't think about, okay, I'm going to have one, two, three, four challenges and not be able to make it. You won't make it. Just try it. Oh, I want a t-shirt now. You will make it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave. Stay brave.